Let's open the Scriptures this morning to the Gospel of John. We're continuing our series of sermons in this Gospel, and as we've seen before, the opening chapter of John lays the groundwork for what John records in the rest of the Gospel. Some of those themes crop up continually, and so to help us understand the themes in John 5, we're going to read a portion of John 1 and a small portion from John 3. So John 1, beginning at verse 6, and just pay attention to the the words witness and the words, uh, the word testify, because they come back again in John 5. John 1 verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because He was before me. From, for from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask Him, Who are you? He confessed, and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now we turn to chapter 3. Toward the end, verse 31, this is again uh, John the Baptist speaking. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." Our text comes from John's Gospel, chapter 5, the verses 30 through 47. I would just like to read a few verses at verse 16 to refresh us with the context. So you might remember that in the early part of chapter 5, the Lord Jesus went down to the pool of Bethesda and He healed a cripple, a crippled man. He did that on the Sabbath day, and that upset the Jews. And at verse 16, we read this, And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him, because not only was He breaking the Sabbath, but He was even calling God His own Father making himself equal with God. So now we go to verse 30. We, we dealt with 19 through 29 last time, and Jesus continues to explain his actions. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So far the text of God's Word this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you say to a person who believes in God but doesn't believe in Jesus? Sometimes you meet people like that. They're quite religious. They have some kind of idea about God. They try to live a life that in their view pleases God, and they can be very sincere about that. They think, for example, it's right to treat others kindly and generously. Some might even read the Bible and find lots of good advice in the Bible for practical living and treating others well. But if you ask them whether they know Jesus Christ as their Lord, as their Savior, as their God, they get quiet. They change the subject. They look at you blankly. Or they might tell you how they admire Him as an example of sacrificial love, but that's as far as it goes. If they believe in a heaven, they figure they're going to get there on their own by their own good works, but they have no interest in Jesus' cross. They have no interest in Jesus' resurrection. When you meet those kind of people, what do you as a Christian say? Well, our Lord Jesus Himself was confronted with this kind of unbelief in the form of the Pharisees and the scribes and the other leaders of the Jews. Unlike most people today, those Jewish leaders, they saw and they heard firsthand what Jesus was claiming about Himself. They saw what Jesus did, and yet they still did not believe Him. And how does Christ respond to them? Well, He lays out for them the evidence and urges them yet again to come to Him that they might have life. So that'll be our theme this morning as I bring you God's Word. Come to Jesus and receive life. Come to Jesus and receive life. He provides us with unshakable testimony, and He urges us to remove unnecessary roadblocks. Well, our text, verses 30 to 47, as you know, is the second half of the Lord's response to the unbelief of those Jewish leaders. And you might remember 
as I sketched a little bit, that those Jewish leaders were upset at Jesus. They were upset that He healed on the Sabbath day. And they became even more upset. They even became enraged when Jesus went on to call God His own Father, making Himself, as verse 18 says, equal with God. The moment He did that, they thought He was blaspheming, which is a sin worthy of death, so they started looking for ways to put Him to death. That's how angry they were. That's how offended they were. These men were religious. They were zealous for God. They even were zealous for God's Word, but they could not accept Jesus and His claims. And in response to this outburst of anger, the Lord Jesus didn't back down. No, He pressed His claims even further. He declared Himself, we saw that last time, verses 19 through 29, He declared Himself to be one with the Father. He explained that the one God whom the Jews knew, the one God is both the Father in heaven and He is the Son on earth standing in front of you. The Son, said Jesus, does the works of the Father, and the Son judges on behalf of the Father. And like the Father has life in Himself, so the Son has life in Himself as well, because the Son and the Father are together one God. And these claims, they are absolutely mind-blowing claims for the Jews. And even for us Christians today, it's quite something to fathom. All those claims up to verse 30 are, are really beyond our comprehension in their fullness. And then what the Lord does, starting at verse 31, is He starts to lay out the proof for these claims. He starts talking about witnesses and testimony. All the way through the end of our text, Jesus is saying, look, if you won't believe My Word then believe these witnesses who testify on my behalf. Witnesses, testimony. Those words come up again and again in our text as they did in John 1, and those words make you think of a court of law, right? In John 1, it starts where John the Baptist is called a witness who was sent by God. He was sent to bear witness to the light. The light is a metaphor for the Messiah. Jesus, in chapter 5, verse 33, will mention or does mention John as a witness. And we wonder, well, why all this talk about witness and testimony well, it's because, brothers and sisters, God is taking His people to court. Israel, you remember, God's people, they have a covenant with God, or better said, God established a covenant with them long ages ago. And in any covenant, if you just think of a marriage covenant, if one party breaks the terms of that covenant, the other party can bring the matter to a, a judge to seek 
justice, to seek enforcement of the terms of the covenant. You have that in a business covenant. You have that in a friendship covenant. You have it in a marriage covenant. And you certainly have that in God's covenant with His people. Promises have to be kept. Obligations must be maintained. It's a legal binding arrangement, these covenants. And a judge will decide if one party has wronged the other or not. Now, when it comes to God's covenant with His people, since God is flawless and holy and never breaks His promises, and since there is no higher power and no more righteous party than God Himself, it is God who acts as the judge. It's His covenant, but because He's unique, He's the judge of the covenant. And Israel, if you think of Israel's history, Israel would regularly violate God's covenant. And so already in the Old Testament, we see that God would approach His people, usually through the prophets, and He would press home His legal claims. He would say to His people, you're breaking the terms of the covenant. You are violating my law. You're, you're going against the things that we agreed upon in my covenant. And an example of that we have in Psalm 50, which we sang. It's quite a remarkable scene. And Psalm 50 as, opens up with God gathering His people together. And then He says, as we sang from stanza 4, My people, I will speak, so listen well. I testify against you, Israel. And then the psalm goes on to give the testimony of God against Israel. In Asaph's day, the writer of Psalm 50, the people, says God, they were coming to church regularly. They offered all kinds of sacrifices regularly, and the animals were in good shape, so all of that was fine. But, says the Lord, their heart was far from God. You have the right sacrifices. You're in church Sunday, but where's your heart? They did not love God. For them, it was a going through the motions. And it showed, says the Lord in Psalm 50, it showed in their lifestyle of sin and self-pleasure. They were just living life for themselves. And in Jesus' day, the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of Jesus, it wasn't a whole lot different for the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders in particular. They never missed a feast. They never missed a Sabbath day. They never missed a ceremony. They were at every worship service, but... Those Pharisees, they couldn't care less about the poor, right? Matthew 6, Jesus spells it out there. They couldn't care less about the widow or the orphan. And even worse, they would not recognize in Jesus the face of their God who had come to them in the flesh. These Jewish leaders of Jesus, they had no love for God. They had no love for Jesus. The Messiah. So that's why there's this, this talk of testimony and witness because God is judge who looks upon His people and assesses them continually. How is it then with you, with me, brothers and sisters? When the judge looks down from heaven, judgment day is not just at the end of history, by the way. It's happening continually that the judge looks upon us. 
When the judge looks down from heaven upon your lifestyle, does he find you all about yourself? Living life to suit your tastes, your satisfaction. When the judge of the living and the dead looks into your heart, and that's Jesus Christ, right? He's the judge. When he looks into your heart, what does he see? Does he see there a love for him? We've seen it last week, in the, or last time in the earlier part of chapter 5. Jesus is your God. Jesus is your God worthy of all devotion, all of your love and mine. He's worthy of your heart and your life. Does He receive that from us? Does the Lord Jesus find you throughout the day giving thought to Him regularly with a thankful heart, praying quietly to Him throughout the day, looking for ways to serve Him? Being here on Sundays is, of course, an excellent thing to be encouraged. But if it is not part of a whole lifestyle, the other six days of the week, a lifestyle that arises out of a, a total love for the Savior, Jesus Christ, who has given His life to save ours, if it is just a weekly habit we've got going on, just a routine we're in every Sunday, what will the judge say to you or me on that day? Because Jesus is exactly who He says He is. And He gives us unshakable testimony to back His claims up. That's what Jesus brings home in verses 31 to 39. And you might know that already in the book of Deuteronomy in the Law of Moses... God made clear that for a, a matter to be established in a court of law, you had to have at least two or three witnesses. One witness was not sufficient to establish guilt in any case. That's why Jesus says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, He's not saying that His testimony is inherently untrue. But he's stressing that if all the people have to go on is Jesus' personal word for it, it could not be considered valid. And it goes even a little deeper than that, for Jesus has been claiming that as God's Son, He and the Father are, are one. Well, if that is in fact true, then whenever the Son speaks, the Father must be speaking along with Him. And there must be evidence of the Father speaking along with Him. Otherwise, there is no unity, and thus that testimony is not valid. So Jesus is saying, in other words, if all you have is the word of a carpenter's son from Nazareth, then yeah, my claims wouldn't be true, and you should stone me as a blasphemer. But there is other testimony. The Father has spoken and provided His witness. In fact, there are several witnesses that really all originate from God the Father. And if you take a bird's eye view of verses 32 to 39, and I know the passage, the text is a bit dense, 
the reasoning of our Lord is a bit, it's compact, but let's just try to get a bird's eye view. Verse 32, Christ mentions another, another who bears witness about me. Who is that other? That's, he identifies him in verse 37 as the Father, okay? So that's one witness, the Father. Then in verse 33, Jesus mentions John the Baptist as a human witness to him being God's Son and Messiah. We read about that in John chapter 1. So that'd be witness number 2. And then in verse 36, Jesus mentions witness number 3, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do these bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the works are a witness. And then a fourth one is mentioned in verse 39. It's the witness of Scripture. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, it's the Scriptures, that bear witness about me. So, so far we have four witnesses, okay? And actually you could add a fifth if you like, Jesus refers to this fifth one in verse 46. It, it's Moses. He says, therefore, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. So Moses testifies to Jesus. So there's a lot of testimony that Jesus packages up in this section. It boils down really to two basic witnesses. It's the witness or the testimony of Jesus, and it's the testimony of His Father. And the Father presents His testimony through three secondary witnesses, the ministry of John the Baptist, the works that the Father has given the Son to do, and the Scriptures of the Old Testament of whom Moses was the first and foundational writer. Well, when you look at that whole package, that's a tremendous amount of testimony, and not just in terms of volume, but in terms of quality. I mean, we're talking rock-solid testimony concerning the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, brothers and sisters, putting your trust in Jesus as the Son of God and the Messiah, that's not a leap in the dark. It is not, as some charge Christians with, it is not a blind faith based on gut instinct that maybe things will work out or we hope things will work out. Faith is not a gamble. No, faith is based on facts. Facts which can be reasoned out. Facts which can be presented in a court of law. They're presented in God's courtroom. The facts are these. The ancient Scriptures, that's the basic witness, the oldest witness, foretold and pointed ahead to a coming Messiah. Then John the Baptist appears on the scene, sent from God. What does he announce? The arrival of the Messiah is at hand. Repent and believe his name is, is Jesus of Nazareth. We read it from John 1. He's the Messiah. He's the Lamb of God. He's the Son of God, said John the Baptist. And all the people of Jesus' own day then heard Jesus Himself preach the same gospel. 
and heard him teach about salvation. They saw him do many works, turn water into wine, cast out demons, convert the hearts of the Samaritans, heal a cripple at the pool of Bethesda. Nobody could do those kind of works unless he was from God. Unless, in fact, he was God in the flesh. So all the witnesses, all the testimony agree that this rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus is exactly who he claims he is. And so anybody who believes in Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of sinners is not undertaking some kind of thoughtless, unthinking faith, but is giving a perfectly rational response. Of course, faith is worked in us by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you can reason yourself into faith, but I am saying that the faith we receive is perfectly reasonable. And it's based on something, something solid, that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see. Later on, the twelve disciples will testify to the entire ministry, suffering, death, and resurrection of this same Jesus. Twelve witnesses. Well, if you have twelve witnesses in any court of law, that would mean case closed. It's a slam dunk. This is confirmed to be true. So, brothers and sisters, Rest assured, be absolutely sure in your heart that Jesus is who He says He is. Son of God, Savior of sinners, Lamb of God. So turn to Him. Repent of your sin. Go to Him. Put your faith in Him and receive what He provides. Forgiveness and everlasting life. Take down all those unnecessary roadblocks in your heart and put your trust fully in this Jesus Christ. For the Lord Jesus in this whole discussion isn't just defending Himself to win an argument with the Pharisees. He's not interested in winning an argument. He wants to win the souls of the Pharisees. And the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders and anybody else who so far has refused to believe the Father's testimony. Jesus makes this, his desire very clear in verses 33 and 34, speaking about John the Baptist's testimony. He says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. You know John. Think about what you heard from John. I'm telling you to think carefully about his witness because I desire that you may be saved. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus really wanted the Pharisees and their ilk to be saved? John has mentioned the Pharisees a couple of times in his gospel. We came across it in chapter 1, verse 24. And they are certainly among the group of Jews that he's addressing in John 5. We know that because they were the ones who sent to John to hear John's testimony. And so he refers back to that in chapter 5, verse 33. And when we hear the word Pharisee, we have certain concept come up in our mind, don't we? I mean, the Pharisees are well-known, and they're not well-liked, are they? The Pharisees have come to stand for 
self-righteous legalists of all ages. They were the people in Jesus' day who opposed Jesus, who could recite any of the laws of Moses, but nevertheless hated Jesus, wanted him dead. So it has become, in the course of history, one of the worst things you can say about another person, and especially another Christian, you're a Pharisee. Nobody wants to be likened to a Pharisee. But let me turn it around a moment. It's fairly easy to dismiss certain people as Pharisees, and then you want nothing more to do with them because you've decided that's what they are. But have you ever thought to pray for the self-righteous in your life? Do you, like Jesus, want them to be saved? Or are you happy enough to smugly write them off? Bunch of Pharisees. Bunch of hypocrites. Do you judge them as arrogant and unsavable? And if you make that judgment, are you so certain that in making that judgment, you have not become a Pharisee yourself? Let's remember our Savior. Remember His nature. Remember His great love for His stubborn, stubborn people. Also for these Pharisees, only days before His death. We read it a few weeks ago at Ahead of Good Friday, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Oh, I wanted to. I still want to, says Jesus. Five days before crucifixion, I still would want to gather you together, but you would not. And it grieves me. Let us follow our Savior in this, brothers and sisters, and say to everyone, I say these things to you that you may be saved. I want you to be saved. The Jewish leaders, they refused to accept the testimony of John the Baptist. They also refused to accept the testimony of the Father which came through the works which the Son was doing, verse 36. And that can be really hard for us believers to fathom in our time. I mean, they saw what we sometimes only wish we could have seen. They saw Jesus in the flesh, right? The Son of God right there, plain as the nose in your face. They heard him speak and preach. They heard wisdom pour off his lips greater than anyone who ever lived, including Solomon. And they saw the Son of God do things that only, the, the, only God had the power to do. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in chapter 3, had to admit what the Pharisees all knew. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Everybody knew that among the Pharisees. His miracles testified that he was from God. 
so that when Jesus then spoke about himself and identified himself as God, one with the Father, they should have accepted that, but they couldn't. They had to stuff that earlier, that testimony of his works. For them, that was the line in the sand for the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, that Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. For them, that was their Rubicon. And they, they shot back at Jesus. You're a blasphemer, they said. You are insane. You are working for Beelzebub on a different occasion, they said. You are anything but who you say you are. You are the furthest thing from the Messiah, the furthest thing from God's Son. They had a line in the sand. What about you? Do you have a line in the sand? Are there things about Jesus that you're okay with, you're prepared to accept, but then other things about Jesus you're not going to bother with, you can't handle? There are lots of people who like the fact that Jesus offers them forgiveness of their sins. They desire a clear conscience before God. But to go further and acknowledge Jesus as their Lord, which means their Master, whom they serve day and night with all of their being, that part many cannot accept. That's over the top. That's asking too much. I'll, I'll gladly accept what Jesus offers me, but to give Him back what He's asking? To give Him my whole life? Mm. Uh, not going to do that. And that separates the false Christian from the true Christian, the false believer from the true. Accepting all the testimony about Jesus means that you acknowledge Jesus to be something more than your get-out-of-hell-free card. He's a lot more than that. You acknowledge this Jesus to be your God. Your God who created you. John 1 verse 1 and 2. Your God who sustains you day by day, moment by moment. Your God who loves you. Your God who died for you. Jesus is your God who wants to spend time with you. He wants to walk with you and talk with you. All for your benefit. Jesus is not merely a figure who does you a good deed. Oh, He is your God who calls you to live with Him and walk beside Him for eternity. This is salvation. This is life. This is joy and satisfaction to have a relationship with Jesus Christ the tri in the triune God. So, whatever line in the sand you've got going on, erase it. Take down that unnecessary roadblock and embrace Jesus Christ with all of your heart and enjoy Him. Enjoy the life He gives. The Jewish leaders saw and heard the works of Christ firsthand. We have them recorded for us in the Scriptures. 
So they remain a witness in that way. And not just in the New Testament Scriptures do we have the record of Jesus' work. In our passage, Jesus makes reference to the Scriptures known to the Jews, which we now call the Old Testament. And He says to them, verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about Me, yet you refuse to come to Me to have life. Later in verses 46 and 47, He specifies that Moses wrote about Him, and then He adds, if you do not believe Moses' writings, how will you believe My words? Moses was writing about Me. Did you know that, brothers and sisters, that Moses, we're talking Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses was writing about Jesus? Not just Moses, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all the prophets. Jesus says, the Scriptures testify about me. The Pharisees were zealous readers and studiers of the Bible. That's to their credit. In and of itself, that's a good thing. Psalm 1, we are to meditate on the Torah, on the instruction, on the Word of God day and night. Joshua 1, keep it in your heart day and night. That's a good thing, but a good thing can become a very bad thing if we use it wrongly. That's what was happening here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees searched the Bible but missed its message. They certainly studied God's Word, but they missed seeing God's Son in the Word. They poured over the Holy Scrolls, but they were blind to God's Holy Servant who was written about on every page of those scrolls. So then how about you and me? How do you read the Bible. Are we reading Scripture diligently? Casual, incidental reading is not the same as what Jesus says here, searching the Scriptures. Searching implies effort. It implies a, a seeking to understand. It implies giving time to spending in the Word. I'm going to search this out until I I understand it better. The Pharisees were not at fault in that respect. What about us? You cannot hope to understand the Word of God unless you put in the effort. And then when we read the Old Testament, what are the glasses that we're reading with? Are we looking for what God wants us to look for? That might be the biggest challenge. We live in a time which places me, myself, and I at the center of everything. And so when we read the Bible, our instinct very often is, okay, um, what does this passage have to say to me? How, how does this apply to my life? What can I get out of this for me? I'm not getting much out of Numbers or Obadiah or Kings, so I'm just going to skip over those, but I don't get much out of them. That's a view of the Bible 
with me in the center. But Jesus in our text is saying God wrote the Scripture with Jesus in the center. So don't look for me, look for Him. Of course, when you find Jesus Christ, you will absolutely see the benefit for yourself because this Christ is your Savior. This Christ is your Lord and your God, and He's there on every page. He's there in every promise to the patriarchs in Genesis. He's in the substance of every sacrifice and ceremony in the tabernacle in Exodus and Leviticus. He's foreshadowed in every prophet, priest, and king of Israel. Every miracle, Jesus is there. He's there in every battle, fighting for His people at Jericho, throughout the land of Canaan, against the Philistines. Who was there with David against Goliath? You think that was David in his own strength, shooting the rock? That's the Spirit of Christ in David. He's there when the angel of the Lord appears, and He's there when, when God descends on Mount Sinai and later in the cloud of glory in the temple. Jesus is Yahweh, right? A member of the Trinity. Jesus is a singer of every psalm, and in every psalm we sing to Him as well. Jesus is the speaker of every proverb. He's the giver of all wisdom. He is all throughout the Scriptures because the Father was pleased to reveal Himself in and through His Son, and He's recorded all of that in His holy book. So when you read the book that God wrote about His Son, look for the Son, look for Christ, and look for the glory that the Father promises you. That was the underlying problem with the Pharisees and the other leaders and why they were so blinded to the testimony about Jesus in the Bible, why they couldn't see it even when Jesus was standing there in the flesh in front of them because the message they were hearing didn't fit with the praise they were seeking. Jesus brings that up in verse 44. He says, how can you believe, you Pharisees, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. The Pharisees were glory seekers among humans. That was their big downfall. Jesus says it elsewhere in Matthew 6 and 7. They were all about making fine appearances, having the finest robes, making these prayers on the street corners, showing up in the marketplaces, having the best seats at the feasts wearing their phylacteries and everything else. They wanted people to observe them being so pious. That's how they used the Scriptures too. They picked out all the laws they could find in the books of Moses. They made additional laws to go alongside of them. And then they practiced and kept all of these commandments for everybody to see. They made sure everybody saw it thinking that God in heaven would be proud of them like they were proud of themselves. But they overlooked the main thing. They overlooked the Christ of the Scriptures whom God would send to sacrifice Himself for the very sin of His people. The Pharisees, they certainly made all the right sacrifices in the temple, but they missed their point. The point was to confess their own sin, the need for their own Savior, the need that 
a sacrifice of, of greater proportion would have to come along to pay for their guilt. This too, this understanding of the Bible, was an unnecessary roadblock to their salvation. If only they had read Scripture with the Messiah front and center, then they would not puff themselves up with pride, but they would lay themselves low with humility. They would not proudly seek the praise and honor and a slap on the back from other people, but they would, with a quiet spirit, put their full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and look only to the Father for salvation, for the, to the Father who rewards everyone who comes to Jesus, rewards them with life everlasting. So, brothers and sisters, believe Believe the Father's testimony about His Son with humility and grace and always a prayer in your heart. Take that testimony that you know to be true. Take it and lay it before everybody you can. The unbeliever you meet, the self-righteous person you know, the spiritual person, whoever in your life who's not yet adhering to that testimony. Lay it before them. That testimony is unshakable. Scripture, the works of Christ, John the Baptist, all say salvation from your sin and mine lies only in Christ. And only by faith can you receive His righteousness. So come. Come get it and discover that it's, it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Amen.